welcome back to Peace In Their Time, episode 88, Trotsky's Baby. As you might have picked up on from the past couple episodes, most of 1918 was, to say the least, a precarious year for the Bolsheviks. Their main achievement early in the year was in suppressing political opposition and managing to get the Soviets scattered across Russia to agree to work under them. This had occurred immediately after the October Revolution and had been largely completed as the new year really got going. The Bolshevik Party itself had swelled from a scant 25,000 members in February 1917 to 300,000 by October. These fresh members weren't big on theory, but they were willing partisans. They either helped secure their local Soviets for Lenin or took to the trains to help other Bolshevik communities secure theirs. It was a smashing success, and outside of the street fighting in Moscow in November, the takeovers were without notable resistance. All this activity was restricted at first to Russia proper, as all those peripheral regions I've discussed in past episodes tried to go their own way. And even on the more distant edges of Russia's core, local Soviet republics were declared, like the Don Soviet Republic, which briefly occupied the lands of the Don Cossacks. These weren't breakaway entities, but they did demonstrate the continued limits of the new central government. And most of 1918 would continue to demonstrate those limits. The Brest-Litovsk Treaty, as necessary as it had been, was a disaster for the central government, and its move to Moscow was seen as a sign of weakness. As I have been covering, centers of white resistance sprung up in opposition. But even with their paltry numbers and deficiencies of equipment, in many instances, the Red Forces actually had it worse. The Bolsheviks' nominal control of the Russian army proved to be of little immediate use, as after the revolution, it totally fell apart, and after Brest-Litovsk, it was demobilized. The Red Army that would replace it would have to be built from scratch, and the Red Guards, who would provide so much of the fighting men in the interim, were usually ad hoc volunteers. Maybe they had some experience in the army, but many of them had not. In January 1918, they were able to deal with a few weaker threats, such as the Orenburg Cossack Host, an uprising of Polish nationals in Belarusia, and a few scattered local governments in Siberia. Uh, even much of the eastern Ukraine was seized, although most of those gains had to be abandoned to the Germans later. And as discussed last week, they almost defeated the Don Cossacks and the Volunteer Army, only to suffer from desertions and stiffening resistance from their adversaries. These battles were conducted on the nation's railways, with thousands of troops with a handful of machine guns loaded aboard railway cars and dropped off directly onto whatever resistance happened to meet them at their destinations. It was a far cry from the massed battles that Russia had just emerged from and would be characteristic of the Civil War as a whole. These battles were won oftentimes through momentum and maneuver almost as much as firepower, and fortunes for either side turned rapidly, although as discussed last week, the momentum was turning against the Bolsheviks by summer 1918. There was, however, an active initiative to build the Red Army into a capable fighting force, spearheaded by Leon Trotsky, the Commissar of War. The idea of a standing army, especially in Civil War conditions, might seem like a no-brainer, but remember that such a force also went against Bolshevik orthodoxy. Especially among the left of the party, there was the idea that armed forces should look like as they had back in October, officerless, ad hoc forces of the people that largely managed themselves. It rapidly became apparent that that wasn't feasible, and under the auspices of Trotsky, a more solid force began to be planned out from scratch. 
and to get things organized, the Bolsheviks really broke their orthodoxy and began recruiting former officers from the Tsarist army. This aroused an enormous amount of grumbling from the Bolshevik rank and file, and even from many higher-ups like Stalin, who not unreasonably pointed out that such men had been their bitter enemies. The officers had oppressed them, and in many cases, caused the deaths of their comrades. They had defended the old order that had just been destroyed. The normal soldiers were especially unhappy, as they had supported the revolution to get away from those officers. A lot of those soldiers also saw the presence of the old officers as a block on their own potential advancement. And for proletarian officers, there was tension, because they had earned their positions by sticking their necks out either on the battlefield or on the streets, compared to the traditional commanders who had relied on birth or connections before the war. But as Commissar of War, Trotsky ignored all the objections, even shutting down military committees when they voiced opposition, and went ahead with putting ex-officers in positions of command calling them technical specialists instead of formally reinstituting their ranks. From a base of 8,000, their numbers grew to 22,000 by the end of 1918 and reached 75,000 by the end of the war, composing three-quarters of all the Red senior commanders. It might seem a little odd, too, that these guys would go over and fight for the Bolsheviks, but they had their reasons to do so. Most of them were career military men, and their continued service was just them going back to their day jobs. It's what they were trained to do, and their futures were much more uncertain outside the army than in it. Many of the officers also declined to head south or east to join the whites, because they recognized that while they themselves weren't thrilled about the revolution, the people had been in support of it. To go against that popular support meant joining with the whites, going through the uncertain business of defeating the Bolsheviks, and then oppressing their own people into compliance with whatever came next. So they just chose to side with the government most of the country was already supporting. Which isn't to say that Trotsky welcomed them with open arms as friends, either. He rather cynically pitched to Lenin that employing them meant that they wouldn't have to be imprisoned and that they could be put to some productive use. And employing them also kept them from turning to the whites as an alternative. In addition, political commissars were appointed to keep an eye on them and co-sign on their orders. The commissars were going to be a feature of the Red Army going forward, and were universally unpopular among the people they monitored. They didn't just backseat command, they really did keep the officers they worked with on their toes as far as being loyal to the regime. A bad report from them could spell disaster for the officer in question, not just during the Civil War, but for the entire time period we'll be covering. One benefit of the commissars that was appreciated was their other job, which was to agitate among the troops where the ex-Czarist officers had a past of, shall we say, indifference towards morale and political engagement, the commissars were big on keeping the spirits of the men up and reminding them of the ideals they were fighting for. So the commanders could focus much more on, you know, the commanding. There were other more direct methods for keeping the old Czarists in line as well. They could be downgraded and sent east to fight in battles where they would be in much graver danger, they could be threatened with imprisonment, and sometimes they were reminded that they were family men with people back home to consider. Through these methods, Trotsky would later be able to point out to the skeptical Bolsheviks that the vast majority of Tsarist officers proved to be solid commanders. And while I've been talking up Trotsky as the guy behind rebuilding the army, the actual details were devised by an ex-Tsarist general staff officer named Mikhail Bonchbroyovich. 
General Bonch signed up early with the Bolsheviks on account of his brother Vladimir being Lenin's personal secretary and an old Bolshevik, which also meant he had a level of trust other ex-Tsarists didn't have. His plan called for a million men to be called up into the new army and divided Russia's corps into six military districts. Helpfully, while the actual fighting men had been mostly demobilized, what remained of the army's administrative apparatus remained, meaning the logistics and bookkeeping guys were still on staff to actually help coordinate an army once it started taking the field. Bonge's primary miscalculation, which was an understandable one, was in focusing the new army westwards during the spring and early summer of 1918. The fear of a renewed German invasion was still very real, so a blind eye was turned towards the south and east, while the bulk of the gradually expanding Red Army took up positions in the western military districts. If you were thinking last week that the grab bag of factions opposing the Reds were really just running roughshod over Russia, that was because they were regarded as the lesser priority. Bonch would also be an active recruiter of ex-Tsarist generals, and would crisscross the nation in his own train and conduct interviews on the spot. His private car was referred to as the General Trap. And the army's priority against the Germans helped Bonch's efforts greatly. Most of his prospects didn't care to fight a civil war, but if the Germans were threatening to invade, they'd be glad to sign up on the Bolshevik side. So it was kind of a short-term backfire kind of thing, as it exposed the Bolsheviks to their civil war enemies, but it did also lead to a lot more experienced men joining up with them. Or maybe from another perspective, it meant that they didn't join against them either. That German help the Cossacks and Ukrainians were getting early on might have been a big help at that moment, but it also drove a lot of patriotic Russians to join the Bolsheviks. But while Lenin had Trotsky and Bonch's backs on the topic of recruiting officers, resistance to these guys was very real, and later in 1918, conflict would break out into the open between the Bolsheviks on the matter. There was one other big hurdle the Red Army had to overcome before becoming a mass army, and that was moving beyond the ideal of being a purely volunteer army. Bonch had laid the groundwork for a million-man army, but as it turned out, a million men could not be found in Russia to step forward and fill the ranks. In April 1918, it was announced there would be mandatory military training as a kind of nudge-nudge thing, and then in May, it was switched to just good old conscription. These efforts didn't work well, as people failed to report for duty, and local authorities were unwilling to antagonize their populaces by rounding them up. In June, a different tact was tried when call-ups were targeted to just Moscow and the regions around the Volga River and Ural Mountains. The Moscow call-ups actually got men into the army, and from then on, the Bolsheviks just focused on recruiting in the cities from the Russian Corps. Part of their success in the cities was because the industrial economy was collapsing due to being starved of resource inputs to actually make anything, so factory workers needed an alternative source of employment. Establishing the authority to actually recruit troops in the countryside in more outlying areas would have to wait for conditions to improve. The quality of the recruits was initially not great. Many of them were those in a desperate spot living as civilians, and others were ex-soldiers with no prospects elsewhere. But it was better than nothing, and the Latvian riflemen couldn't be everywhere. On the social front, too, the Bolsheviks moved to consolidate their positions in anticipation of the internal battles to come. In June, the remaining Mensheviks and SRs were purged from the executive of the Congress of Soviets, which brought an end to that body's influence permanently, as it became just, you know, a Bolshevik organization, basically. Moving forward, Bolshevik Russia would be organized in two ways. The red-held areas would continue to be managed by the Soviets, which by summer 1918 
Well, the Soviets were no longer councils for all practical purposes and more just leadership boards. Reliable Bolsheviks were appointed where they didn't already dominate, and the Soviets became the conduit for Lenin's orders. Local power became concentrated in men reporting directly to Moscow. This at least was the ideal, but there were usually three centers of power that emerged in the provinces and cities. The local Soviet leaders welcomed power being concentrated in their persons and were willing to execute Lenin's orders to win the war, but there was also the local Bolshevik party leadership that constantly tried to assert itself over the Soviets as well, which uh, naturally the Soviets resisted. Keep in mind, most of the Bolshevik party was composed of Johnny-come-latelys, so local leaders weren't keen on obeying local small fries. The third pillar that both those groups tried to keep at arm's length was the Cheka, which keep in mind for whenever I cover the Bolshevik perspective on these events, they're always there looking for the uh, politically unreliable. To oversee areas recovered from the whites and the other factions, revolutionary committees were established. These groups were almost entirely set up by the Red Army and were pretty much just, you know, military rule type deals. They were supposed to lay the groundwork for true Soviets to be set up, but in hotspots like the South, something like 1,200 committees were established in towns and communities, and in some cases lasted for years. In Russian Asia, these organizations persisted in places into the mid-20s. These committees also clashed with the Bolshevik party members, who tried to boss them around just as they did the Soviets behind the lines. You might be wondering why anybody had any patience for the party at this time, and believe me, that patience was thin, but it was fast gaining in influence. The local party branches could get in touch to HQ back in Moscow, and also built up their influence locally via appointments and requisitions, which meant that while the party didn't formally govern anything, they were already consolidating that influence that would lead them to dominate society. And again, these weren't the most solid guys who joined the party either. I kind of talked down on the Red Army volunteers, but at least they signed up for a demanding and unpleasant job. A lot of the guys who signed up with the party did so with the expectation of quick social advancement from behind a desk. Which, just as a little aside, uh, by the way, uh, the old RSDLP party was done away with on March 8th, 1918, and replaced with the All-Russian Communist Party, so that old tie to social democracy was severed. It also provides a handy milestone to start calling these guys communists, finally. Anyway, the early Communist Party members weren't great, and their numbers would only increase. Bribery, embezzlement, showing up to work drunk, all were commonplace, and one of the earliest sources of friction with the Cheka was because they were the ones who had to follow up on complaints. The Cheka didn't pull punches in their reports either. They frankly passed along to the higher-ups concerns that such men were hurting the war effort and demoralizing entire cities. It would lead eventually to a purge of the party on Lenin's orders, but that was going to be down the road and a pile of abuses afterwards. That all being said, if party members had hoped to dodge the war by joining the organization, they would be disappointed. Starting in that critical summer of 1918, 40,000 party members were transferred to the Red Army, with a half million Communist Party members eventually serving in the war. The experience would mark the party for well over a generation, as the common struggle of the Civil War served to give them something to unite around in the post-war years, as their bonds of camaraderie were very real. It also set most of the early party apart from a lot of the population. They might have been undereducated, they might not have had a lot of technical skills, but for those who fought and made it through, there came to be an identity of machismo, of self-confidence. They would need leaders to rally around the future, like, oh, I don't know, Stalin, but they were also guys confident in their abilities to execute on behalf of those leaders. 
Trotsky compared these communists to the samurai of old, because he was a nerd, and made every effort to get them to the front, which in turn was great for the state as a propaganda coup. You know, you actually have party members at the front defending the revolution. Something I haven't gone over yet that was a hallmark of the socialist state was the nationalization of industries. Whereas the whites and their affiliates mostly left local commerce to private interests, such as they were in areas they controlled, the Bolsheviks were more hands-on from the get-go. A lot of factory owners wanted to close up shop and sell off their assets after the October Revolution, giving the excuse that many ventures had become unprofitable. Which, yeah, they were in the middle of one of the biggest social revolutions of all time and at the wrong end of a cataclysmic foreign war, so given the scale of dislocation, I can see how they'd be unprofitable. But these guys were also clearly looking to sell off as much as they could, as fast as they could, and get the hell out before the Bolshevik government came fully online. And the workers weren't going to sit idly by as their livelihoods were stripped and sold. The workers proactively nationalized the factories that they worked in, which is to say that those worker committees that were still kicking around took them all over. This was backed by the new government, and on December 14, 1917, the banking system was nationalized and directed to fund those unprofitable operations so as to keep the workers employed during the, well, during the everything that was happening. On January 21, 1918, foreign loans made by the Tsar were repudiated, which was going to have a lot of consequences. The French had especially been bankrolling the autocracy since before 1905 and had helped keep the state afloat. The Russian Empire had owed them a lot of money, not to mention all the other big creditors picked up during World War I. A big reason why the Entente was going to be making appearances in Russia during the Civil War was to see if there was any way to get their goddamn money back. Foreign trade was placed under government control on April 22, 1918, although a lot of Russia's borders were out of their hands, so that was more aspirational at the time. By June 28th, the railway networks were in direct government control, and their holding companies were dissolved. The whole of the industrial sector was not actually nationalized immediately, just those seized by the workers. Lenin, in fact, made the left communists under Bukharin mad again after overpowering them in the Brest-Litovsk debates by asserting state capitalism would be the initial industrial policy of the new state. Basically, factory owners could still manage their businesses, but the government would be looking over their shoulders to make sure they performed as instructed. This didn't work, as the business class that remained really didn't want to cooperate. And as the Civil War got worse and Russia became even more isolated from foreign trade, ever more extreme measures were going to have to be made anyway. Which, yes, I'm talking about war communism, and yes, I'll be covering that at a later date. I'm just catching you up to the mid-1918 on the social front here. But back on the military front, though, the most critical sector continued to be the Volga River, where the Czechs and Kamuch government were on the move up and down the river. Part of the reason why the Red Army failed so dismally to check their advances, <laughs> a little pun there, wasn't just because too much of the army was concentrated in the West, it was also because the local Red Commander decided to launch a mutiny as well. And he mutinied because his political faction had also decided to mutiny. Mikhail Moraviev had been a lieutenant colonel in the Tsarist army, as well as a left SR member. That last part meant he was placed in some key early commands for the Reds on account of the left SRs being seen as reliable allies of the Bolsheviks. He had been the one to defeat General Krasnov when the latter had been ordered by Kerensky to march on Petrograd after the October Revolution, and had also crushed the Ukrainian Rada's forces before the Germans had entered into Ukraine. Now he was being called upon to stop the Kamuch and secure the Volga, and initially, that's just what he did, 
reorganizing his scattered troops and trying to form a coherent front after taking command on June 13th. But back in Moscow, the left SRs had decided to bail on their affiliation with the Bolsheviks. The left SRs had always been committed to the idea of upending society and taking down capitalism. It's what had led its members into breaking the greater SR organization and joining with a pack of committed communists. However, they were only different from the right SR counterparts in that regard. They lacked the cold-blooded ruthlessness that separated the Bolsheviks from everyone else, and they were determined to live by their ideals. They had despised making a pact with Imperial Germany at Brest-Litovsk and were getting tired of the Bolsheviks consolidating power amongst themselves. Although their response to the treaty of giving up their commissar positions on the Subnarkum might not have been the most effective way of getting their message across, as it just consolidated power in Bolshevik hands still more. The left SRs were horrified, too, by the appearance of an actual German ambassador in Moscow, the noble Count Mirbach. On July 4, 1918, the Fifth Soviet Congress opened to the Bolshoi Theater in Moscow, and the rowdy group broke with Lenin and denounced the shameful peace, promising to resume a revolutionary war against the capitalists. Mirbach was symbolically in the Tsar's booth in the theater, watching everything happen. He was less than impressed, but that didn't matter because two days later, he was dead. A left SR member of the Cheka and an associate had tried to corner the Count on the pretext of discussing a possible spy that was related to him, and opened fire with pistols. Their aim, as in so many of these cases, was awful, and the Count almost escaped. The Cheka member had an explosive device with him, though, and chucked it, managing to inflict a fatal wound on Mirbach. The assassins then booked it to a waiting car, which then took them to a barracks that housed the local Cheka combat unit. Its commander was also a left SR, so they were momentarily safe. The consequences, though, were severe. Lenin was brought to the German embassy and made to give a formal apology on the spot, which was embarrassing as all hell. Zerzhinsky went down to the barracks and demanded that they give up the assassins. The local Cheka outfit responded by taking their own boss hostage, and then the entire left SR contingent of the organization took the Lubyanka building, which was its national headquarters. Also, it was going to be the headquarters of all the Cheka successor groups, including the NKVD and KGB. 2,000 left SR Cheka troops then began to seize key points across Moscow, which was an issue because there were only 700 soldiers loyal to Lenin in the city at that exact moment. The Latvian riflemen stationed there had been having a group celebration outside the city, and that evening saw a torrential downpour that prevented them from traveling back. This was a huge scare for Lenin as he hunkered down in the Kremlin that night, wondering if what men he had on hand could hang on until the morning. But once again, the SRs lacked the same killer instinct the Bolsheviks had. They didn't go for Lenin. They didn't go for anybody. They made a show of taking the city and then called on the people to rise up and free themselves. They didn't even offer themselves as a real alternative. They basically just told everyone to wing it on their own. The left SR members walked into the Soviet Congress, which was still ongoing in the Bolshoi Theater, and launched into a denunciation against the Bolsheviks. They didn't think, though, to bring muscle to secure the building, though, and Bolshevik troops still controlled the theater. Security told the friendly representatives to go home and arrested the left SRs on the spot. This pretty much all happened on the 6th and early morning of the 7th of July, and by the end, the left SRs were detained and 13 executed that night. The rest got off with surprisingly light sentences, but their influence was purged from the Cheka. 
the left SRs had been a moderating influence on the Cheka, and with their removal, well, they got a lot rougher. The group would go on a spree of terror to root out any further enemies, which we'll get on into in a future dedicated Cheka episode. It was all pretty partial, and represented one of the last acts of political opposition to Lenin within Russia. Moving forward, the future of Russia would be settled on the battlefield. Which, hey, speaking of, there was still General Moraviev still sorting out the Volga Front at this time. He made sure to give Lenin a ring after the left SR uprisings and told him that things were still fine between them. Lenin accepted this and told Moraviev's commissars to just keep a close eye on him. They did not do a good job of that. On July 9th, Moraviev took a force loyal to him personally and went rogue, sailing south from Kazan to Simbursk, modern-day Ulyanovsk. He aimed to set himself up as a warlord and establish his own faction. Given the unpopularity of the Kamuch, this wasn't as outlandish an idea as it might seem. Still a pretty bad idea, though. Because on July 11th, a team of Red Guards, Cheka, and Latvian riflemen in Simbursk uh, managed to ambush Moraviev and take him out during a meeting with local leaders. He was killed in a hail of gunfire, and his mutiny died with him. That all being said, it threw the Volga Front into chaos, which is why the Czechs and Kamuch were able to advance so quickly on Subbursk and Kazan, as I described last week. It was in this atmosphere of collapse and panic that Trotsky took command alongside Joachim Vatsetis, the commander replacing Moraviev. Vatsetis was high up in the Latvian riflemen, and ergo seen as far more reliable. Too bad for him, the army he commanded was not. The Czechs and Kamuch forces that were advancing on the Red headquarters of Kazan were a small force of just 2,500 men that had broken from the main army and advanced on Kazan against the local Czech commander's wishes. It turned out those over-enthusiastic troops might have had the right idea. In just two days, from the 5th to the 7th of August, the entire 5th Army, the main Red formation in the area, completely melted away with barely a fight. Vetsetis barely made it out with his own life, as some of his command staff decided to defect and turn their guns on him. He had to rally his fellow Latvians and fight his way out of the area. This disaster further reinforced Trotsky's conviction that only a centralized military force can win, and he went further enforcing tighter controls on troop quality when sent to the front. The Bolsheviks were in a tricky spot in the east, but as more of the urban proletariat and Bolshevik party itself started to fill out the Red Army's ranks, the tables began to turn. Next week, we'll get into the hardening of the Red Army's capabilities and the expansive battles they were called on to fight against the White Tide. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.